two members of our vestry are getting married, but they're not getting married to one another. David Rote is marrying Perry Beaton, a wonderful member of our parish, and Elizabeth Springer is marrying Schuyler Drummond, a wonderful and old soul. Their weddings happen to be on the first on the on the same day, and we're preparing for them and thinking a lot about them. They'll be beautiful and wonderful in every Episcopal wedding, no matter where it is, no matter the occasion however formal or informal, has three very traditional components. The first is a couple making lifelong vows publicly and in front of others till death do us part, a remarkable moment of permanence and beauty and commitment. In a marriage, there are also witnesses, witnesses from the community and witnesses that are um, required by the state. The, the, the church witnesses who are there, just the people who are invited and show up. And those witnesses um, watch the couple and listen to the couple make those vows publicly and therefore take responsibility for supporting them. The priest asks of those witnesses, the same thing the priest asked at baptism. Will you who are gathered here do all in your power to support this couple in their marriage? And you all answer? And you should do it with a little more enthusiasm than that. (laughs) There are also two required witnesses required by the state who fill out paperwork after the service a really traditional and essential part of any marriage. And then there's the giving and receiving of rings. Rings are beautiful and however complex or expensive they may be, the point behind them is to be a public sign by which this couple have bound themselves to each other. And rings also, therefore, serve a very practical purpose. They show you who goes with whom and therefore who's off limits. I thought of all this because we're getting ready for it, but it was the only comparison I could come up with. It's the only thing that I could think of in our society today that is comparable, not identical, but comparable to what's going on in our first reading from the book of Joshua. The book of Joshua begins with the death of Moses. The book of Joshua ends with the death of Joshua. Joshua is Moses' successor. You may remember that Moses is granted the vision and the promise of the promised land, but Moses himself knows that he himself will not get there. He will see it from afar and with certainty and faith know that his people will arrive. But it's left to Joshua to make it. It's left to Joshua finally to get there. In the book of Genesis, Moses is is given the covenant on Mount Sinai. Here we are at Shechem in the book of Joshua. And that covenant, Joshua and the Israelites have finally arrived. And it's here at Shechem that they ratify, finalize the covenant. They're all gathered together. And just like at a wedding... There are witnesses. There are three witnesses. 
The people are a witness. They make vows before God and one another. And therefore they're able to hold one another accountable and encourage one another on the long journey. God is a witness and God hears their promises. And God can hold them accountable and encourage them on the long journey. God also hears God's own words and always remembers them. The third witness we'll get to in a moment. This covenant business might be hard for some of us to imagine, even and perhaps especially as as Christians. Um, This covenant business in the psyche and imagination of Israel is something essential to their identity. It's not even something they exactly choose. It's this divine gift that it's at the core of their heart and body and soul and story. It's at the heart of their past, their present, and their future. All that they see and all that they are are bound up with who God is. It's not just something they do on Sundays. It's not just something they turn to when they need help. Ellie Wiesel that great author of the book Night and a Holocaust historian said once in an interview about the covenant, for a Jew to believe in God is good. For a Jew to protest against God is still good. But to simply ignore God, that is not good. Anger, yes. Protest, yes. Affirmation, yes. But indifference to God, no. You can be a Jew with God. You can be a Jew with God. You can be a Jew against God. But it's impossible for a Jew to be a Jew without God. At the very center of their existence and identity is this covenant. We are all smart Episcopalians. And so we know to think critically about religion and especially religious identity. And one of the things we should wrestle with is that there are profound and good covenants like this one with the Jews and marital covenants. But there are also covenants that are taken up for for sinister motives and even evil motives in terms of how groups and nations and races conceive of their identity. So I want to tell you a very different story compared to this one in Joshua. I was, my first parish as rector was in a great, was in a river town in the Diocese of Alabama. And I served a wonderful parish there, just a stone's throw from where I grew up. And one time I had the burial liturgy, a service in the church with the committal of the graveside at a cemetery. And what was unusual to me is nine out of ten burials from that parish, I knew where the cemetery was. This one I did not. I'd never heard of it. So when the service ended in the church, I said to the funeral home, listen, I'm going to be right behind you. I've never heard of this place. I don't know where we're going. I'll be right behind you. It was before smartphones and GPS. And I followed him, and we went not just to the country, but we went to the woods. We were in the middle of nowhere. It was a small group gathered, and I was 
as I was walking into the cemetery, I noticed that it was a beautiful cemetery, simple but beautiful and well-kept. But there was one thing that was just bizarre. Running through the literal middle of the cemetery in the woods was a chain-link fence. Did the committal or the graveside, and I waited until the service was over and everybody was gone, and I went to the grave digger and I said, hey, what's the story on the chain-link fence? And without pause, he mumbled, it separates the whites and the blacks. That's a kind of covenant, an evil one, but a kind of covenant. And I realized in that moment the tragedy of it, but also how vital it is, how it is we imagine with whom we are connected How it is we imagine heaven. How it is we imagine earth. The covenant with God in Joshua is a covenant and a linking with a very particular God who is revealed in a very particular story. And this is how Joshua and the Israelites tell it. It's a covenant with a God who's revealed in this story. The Lord our God brought us out of bondage in Egypt and out of the house of slavery. It's that God. Not just some abstract God. It's that God. And it's the story of the God who liberates. The story of a God who gets passed down and loved, especially by anyone. Anyone who is poor or marginalized. And it's that reason why this story was so beloved by the leaders of the civil rights movement. And so beloved by LGBT Christians in the Episcopal Church. The promised land, in part, in part, is the place of human flourishing. And the story of the covenant and the story of our God, therefore, is a promise and a story for the entire cosmos, all people. Then as now, it's easy to forget the story. So here's what Joshua did. He took a great stone... And he put it and set it up in the foot of the oak of the sacred precincts of the Lord. And Joshua said, this stone shall be a witness for this stone heard all the words that we said. So the stone's the third witness that hears. The stone and the story, therefore, belong together. Stones are landmarks, of course, and an ancient symbol for divinity. Psalm 18, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge. When this church was founded, the bishop gave us the name St. John's Church in the Wilderness. It's still our official name. And he named us St. John's Church in the Wilderness for for a reason that I find humorous now, looking back, because he said the nearest Episcopal parish was 700 miles away in Kansas. We're in the middle of nowhere. The woods don't just exist in Alabama. The church eventually 
tragically burned, and when it was rebuilt by um, a dean and many other incredible lay people, they rebuilt it with Indiana limestone. They rebuilt it with stone so that our name, St. John's in the Wilderness, is an echo of the Israelites' journey in the wilderness. And these stones are an echo of the story from the book of Joshua. These stones keep us grounded even as they invite us to look to the heavens. This is a place for humility and for dreams. We come here for many reasons, even complex reasons, but at our best we come here in order to remember the story, the story of who we are and whose we are. This remembrance, however, is followed by a question, or it should be followed by a question, a moral question. Are we willing to share with others what we have received in this place? The prayers, the relationships, the stories, the grace, the sacraments. Are we willing to share all of it? The place in the pews, room. Are we willing to share all of it with another person, with another group? It's perhaps true that you and I will only have received it, the grace, the gift, the covenant, when we long to share it. And that is why the ultimate symbol in Christianity is not stone, but bread. Bread which must be shared in order to be eaten and given away in order to be consumed and internalized.